Hello and welcome to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I'm Sean Williamson. In 1993, my great aunt Peg Ransom was a player in a dramatic scene that was reenacted months later on the CBS television show Rescue 911. I began working on this story in 2019 in my apartment in Ridgewood, Queens, and will be sharing it as part of an experimental nonfiction memoir series here on Blight. Baby Bumper William Shatner comes through the doorway of the void into the control room, cutting a path between blipping screens and ringing phones. This is the beginning of a transfer of an old recording, digitized now and compressed for YouTube. The edges of the image warble, a static line rolls one-third up to the bottom of the image, settling on the bottom, bubbling there. Shatner is not a young man, but not his current guest star, celebrity VH1 roast form either. Shatner speaks. One of the great pleasures of parenthood is watching a child grow and develop, but the innocence and curiosity of children often make them particularly vulnerable. I'm William Shatner. Tonight, true stories of men and women who choose to make a difference on Rescue 911. We begin on the afternoon of March 28, 1993, in Wakunda, Illinois. Michael Horry was going to work that Sunday, leaving his wife Pam and their two young children behind at home. The camera fades down into the house, suburban and middle class, where the kitchen has been crowded on Thanksgiving. The fridge in the garage, eight cans of diet caffeine-free Pepsi, beers, sausage bits in a bag, Chicago, some 40 minutes away, bustling and booming, chucking smoke out into the train yards. The White City. In the house, Michael is big with a mustache, a sweatshirt struggling to close the distance from his belly button to belt line. Like me, he is big, and like me, he is in his late 30s, reaching down, kissing his children, a boy struggling into a snowsuit, his wife Pam, sweet Pam, short hair and white jeans, big, really good teeth. Then the little girl Allison, a cap on her head, Allison has been asking Michael all week if she could ride to work with him, but no. Everyone is always ready for Wakunda in March. Michael kisses his children, the remnants of breakfast cooling in pans on top of the stove, an open tin foil of ham getting purple, a sack of rolls, butter quag yellow in the dish. Then there's a skip in the timeline. Michael is right there, with Pam, in chairs. It's a close medium shot. The hot light shines on their faces, and we know something has happened. Something so potent, Terror Dome. It is the beginning. Terrible, but not most terrible story, evidenced by their ability to recall the event, even rehearsed as it is. Hello. Oh, hi, Kevin. It was a co-worker of Mike's, and I said, you know, he's just about ready to pull out of the driveway, but I'll run out and tell him that you called, and I'll let him know that you're waiting for him. Hey, Mike, Kevin called and told you're on your way down, okay? So I'll see you when you get back. Okay. 
In the reenactment, the tires of the box truck move. Then a medium of the grill and the front window, the truck turning out of the driveway into the subdivision street. Pam walked back into the house, thinking, hmm, what a world. Already. Then calls her daughter's name a couple of times. Allison! Allison! But nothing. And then again, gently of course, because this absence is nothing. Allison! Pam walks down through the living room in the half-dark of the morning. The entertainment center is quiet. The house is not yet lit, still waking up. Allison! Pam looks under the bed. It was not like Allison to not answer her. Allison was gone. Why in your house would a child be gone? Had someone come through the window in that moment and snatched the tiny girl in her snowsuit? In a suburb of Chicago, some 40 minutes away from all that mayhem and murder of the city, but these things happen all over. Adam Walsh was just standing outside a department store. Allison! Pam went outside, hoping that Allison would be out there. Outside, perhaps a last oasis before the terror grew fully alive in itself. A tricycle beside the walk, outside the house, a small orange slide. They had not even seen a single person on their block that day. Back in the studio... Pam, short blonde hair, straight across bangs, a white curtain on the window, a floral shirt. And she wasn't. And then it started, the scary feeling. Allison! Answer me! There's a forest preserve next to our home, and then there's a highway not too far. And I know how fast a child her age can be. But my biggest fear was that someone had taken her. Like someone had taken Adam Walsh and Tara Calico, that Polaroid, imagining her daughter in the back of that van, duct tape over her mouth. Commercial break. McDonald's double play two double cheeseburgers for $2. Star Trek The Next Generation starring Patrick Stewart. Another universe Shatner exists in. Kids run the obstacle padded jungle gym, slide down the ball pit, singing, Jump into Discovery Zone, the coolest place for my pals and me. Setting shot. The welcome sign for Wakunda. Then a burgundy Toyota sedan zips by. As Pam searched for her missing two and a half year old daughter, Peg Ransom was heading east on nearby Route 176. Just coming out of town, I began to see a square-shaped truck. Then I noticed there was something right in the middle of the truck that I knew I couldn't be seeing. The truck disappeared for a while, but as I came back up, there was this little tiny girl standing on the bumper. Peg Ransom is my great aunt, and in this reenactment, she's playing herself. She is in her 60s, hair in significant curl, clear framed glasses covering. 
is smiling in the reenactment, though I wonder who smiles on their way to anywhere. What errands or chores could bring such joy? The white truck whooshes down the road. Then the reenacted shot, which must have been executed against a green screen in the safety of the studio, Allison in a windbreaker, her hair spiraling and flapping in the wind, trees and pavement whipping around her. I was so frightened. We were going at 50 miles an hour. This cannot go on. I speeded up and I began doing anything I could to get the attention of this driver. Stop! But the driver did not stop. It was a real nice afternoon. I had the windows down, so I could hear nothing except the wind blowing through the cab of the truck. I noticed there was a car behind me swerving across the double yellow lines. The only thing I thought that possibly the person had been drinking or was trying to pass me. Well, on that road, you can't pass. And there's really nowhere on this road to pull over because the shoulder's too small. So I just sped up to get out of the person's way. Nothing I was doing was working. And our speeds went to 60, 65, 70. After we had traveled several miles, up ahead, I saw a traffic light. And he rounded the corner. The next camera angle captures the loneliness and hopelessness of that missed light. The truck and the following car are far away. On the other side of a long green field, a wooden fence, world of air, tufts of weeds in the ditch, small patches of birds, the flatness of Illinois, the growing old in each year, the hopefulness of a new coming summer, the sound of the crickets, the well-maintained lawns, the big loneliness of the moment. It was a country road. Where was he going? How long was it going to take for him to get there? How much longer could she hold on? How in the world could she have the sense to hold on where every instinct would say, get me out of here, get me away from this. Peg cried then in the studio. Her eyes red and ringed. She had a son of her own. She had a set of grandnieces and nephews. The youngest, Alyssa, who is my sister, was the same age as Allison, who dangled off the back of the truck. How could this happen? Danger is unforgiving of any norm. Peg thought of when her son had gotten in trouble at school, trouble with the law, when he broke his arm in a football game, his curly hair laying against the hospital pillow. I knew that if I pulled back, that my chance of getting the driver's attention would be nil. But if she fell, she'd be in my path. The child couldn't hold on. How could she? I did everything I knew to help, but I wasn't helping. 
I watched this video, the grainy YouTube transfer, and myself lose hope. Even though I know the outcome, the cross-hatching desperation will always exist as a moment. That fear will always exist as a moment. And I will think of my own children, Theodore perhaps overtaken by a fever that won't stop rising, Sawyer perhaps disappearing at a crowded beach. Like my Aunt Peg, I will marvel and stand awestruck before a reality, a life indiscriminate, calm, and brutal. But I'm still so ignorant to how jagged the edge is. Pam runs through the neighborhood in a different horror because to her, her child has vanished. The sky is big and matte gray above her. She runs screaming Allison's name. I was thinking, thinking my God, God she's, she's gone, gone and I'll never see her again. again. In the studio, Pam looks into her hands and back up. She shakes her head slightly. Her eyes are soft and will always hold the cloud of that feeling. I felt like I was just sinking into a hole. Dick McGill, an off-duty firefighter, was driving in the opposite direction when he spotted Peg waving at the truck in front of her. I couldn't believe it was for real at first, you know, I thought I was saying things. If she would have fallen off at the speed we were going, I didn't see how she could survive the fall. I mean, I could do CPR, but I think the damage would have been far beyond that. I looked in my rearview mirror, and there was a man who was giving me a high sign, and I knew then that I wasn't alone. Dick McGill comes up fast in his yellow Jeep. Peg is still honking and waving out the window. What a relief it must be for Peg. What a relief to know that you are not the only one seeing this. What a relief it is to have a partner in the mission, another witness to the possible calamity. And Allison can hold on. She's held on this long. We all know she can make it. That she must make it. Peg and Dick and Shatner, the grip in the studio even, the hungover kid who runs craft services, my mother and father, my brother and sisters, as we sat on the living room floor in 1993, rain pelting the window of our house in our own country subdivision, myself all these years later, watching the YouTube transfer in my cluttered Ridgewood apartment, watching in my Aunt Peg's honor because days earlier my mom told me that Peg was dying. Peg herself and her body actively dying in her house in Libertyville. We all know Allison can make it. I knew there was an intersection coming up. I knew I had a stoplight there. I knew that was my only spot that I could get around them and that I could get them stopped. Allison cries and hangs on to the back of the truck. Here, if she can make it through this moment, she will survive. The yellow Jeep speeds up and out over the diamond of yellow lines. Here, 
This could be the moment. Here, Peg thinks. Here, I think, in my apartment in Ridgewood. The future be damned. Whatever dangers lay ahead for Allison, for all of us, here, she can survive. Allison can be pulled off the back of the truck into her father's arms, to survival, to more chances for love and happiness, petting zoos, birthdays, inner tubing on the lake, bears games, orange sodas, then marriage and loves and other deaths and the death of her mother and father, then Allison herself, to some other calamity or some other slow, mundane shutdown. But that future didn't matter. This moment matters. Here, Dick thought as he sped up even to the driver's side window, Michael was tapping his hand on the ledge of the window with the music, Michael still oblivious to the danger of the moment. There's a little girl on the bumper of your truck, Dick yelled. And instead of all the other things that could have happened, Michael stopped and got out and ran to the back of the truck. Here, Michael thought. This was the moment when something could have gone one way, but then went another. Peg and Dick got out of the cars. Here, the sun and wind warm on their skin, the pavement stretching back. Here, how they had changed. Allison wrapped her arms around her father's neck, and he walked her to the truck and set her inside, then got inside and drove away. Dick and Peg stood out on the pavement, wondering if anything comes next. Having moved from a desperate and lonely moment to just a lonely moment. They wondered what Allison and Michael were like in the truck on the way home. Did they cry? Did they laugh with joy? Did they roll down the window and turn the radio up? Thanks for listening. Show music and sound design for this episode was done by Ian Salman. As always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Check out the merchandise on our website. We have t-shirts. I'm also pleased to announce a new branch of the Blight Tree, the Blight Record Project. The Blight Record Project produces adaptations of contemporary short stories and other experimental storytelling ventures printed to vinyl and limited run. The debut full-length split features Angel of Death by Brian Evenson and A Skull Dreams It Is a Horse by Ashley Main. Both stories are scored and composed by Nathaniel Hoyer and the band Hello Death. On Saturday, March 11th, at Musa Church in South Milwaukee, there will be a record listening and live performances, including music by Nathaniel Hoyer, Liv Mueller, and a reading by Ashley Main. This will be the first time the record will be available to purchase. All information about Blight Record Project number one, including ticket sales for the album release party and pre-orders, are available at blightstories.com. Playing us out today is a poem by Rhea Dambura. Rhea is a repeat performer on the show. She is a brave writer and an encouraging friend whose awareness and wit I have been disarmed by and enchanted with since we met at the Colgate Writers Conference seven years ago. Last year in a Chicago dispensary, 
I absentmindedly picked up the latest copy of Broccoli Mag, where, to my great joy and surprise, I discovered one of Rhea's stories published. I walked around the store showing anyone who would look and telling anyone who would listen, quote, I can't believe it. This is my friend Rhea's story. You gotta read this. She's incredible. End quote. Rhea lives and writes in upstate New York. Her work has appeared in Chronogram, Peripheries Journal, Artsy, and Broccoli Mag. She's been nominated for a Pushcart and Best American Essays. She's currently Content Marketing Manager at NutriSense, Managing Editor for Five on the Fifth, and on the board for Quiet Lightning. She is also the author of Sandalwood Scented Skeletons, Finishing Line Press, 2022, from which she will be reading the poem, Final Questions. Here is Rhea. Final Questions. What happens to bones left to air dry in the sun? Without the cushy blanket of soil, decomposition delayed, how quickly will sandalwood-scented skeletons turn to dust? The cadaveric ecosystem hard at work under the skin, even as soft tissue, dainty organs, flesh, bone, all succumb slowly to that permanent cessation, lived out, done. What covers your corpses when your body's done? Ours roll over in muslin, fine fabric in which to meet sun and rain, fine fabric in which to rest as bodies succumb to the slow air drying, up in the tower, where a delayed putrefaction seeps in and rots soft tissue, skin, dainty organs, flesh, bone, all soon nothing but dust. The sandalwood-scented skeleton, too, must turn to dust, mustn't it? Lying on that hot concrete, lived out, done, evaporated with the memories once alive, now just skin and bones, and not even skin once the sun has played its sizzling part in this delayed but hastened decomposition. All skeletons eventually succumb. Does anyone really think of how the skeletons succumb when their relatives are slowly turning to dust? Their grief hitting corpseless patches of earth, delayed distress striking, long after funeral rites are done. Wrapped up in tears, who's looking up at the sun thinking, it all succumbs, flesh, bone, that pretty skin. Gruesome, all these grisly thoughts of delayed decomposition and the rotting of bone and skin. Macabre talk of lives lived out, dead, dying, done of those sandalwood-scented skeletons that succumb, and how in graves, pyres, or concrete rings were all the same dust, but only some of us, in the tower, in the sun. Forget for a minute the bodies and their state of delayed decomposition. Think of the smoky aromas on the skin of those skeletons before the funeral rites are halfway done. The fragranced wood so strong, muslin is forced to succumb, to let in hit after hit of heady aroma, encompassing the dust long after, and then the skeletons are placed outside, in the sun. Before that delayed rot strikes and the bodies succumb, some skin is sandalwood-scented, transforms its skeletal dust into sweet, smoky, sun-kissed drafts before it's all done. <laughs> 